Hey everyone, Cassius Felicelli here, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast where we interview the leaders of tomorrow in technology. And today we're speaking with Arash Afrate. So Arash is an investor at Pair VC, where he focuses on B2B startups, specifically working on AI, cloud, and data infrastructure problems. He was previously the co-founder of Keridan Technologies, which he bootstrapped for 11 years before it was acquired by Cisco. I'm also joined in this conversation by the co-founder and CEO of Feveret, Dr. Reza Azizian. First of all, thank you for doing this. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because of your story, right? You came to the US, you started working at Microsoft, then you went to Apple, you started your own company, now you're at Pair. A lot of people don't have that journey, right? A lot of people have not accomplished what you've accomplished. So I, I really appreciate it. This is going to be awesome. Um, but let's start off with a fun question. If you could tell us the story about the Newton t-shirt, that would be awesome. Yeah, I was very surprised that you knew about the Newton t-shirt. Um, you know, there are people in your life, sometimes they arrive at the right moments and they make their a contribution, a life-changing contribution. For me, this was this individual called Shifte Karimi. Um, she was my mom's second cousin. She was incident. She studied in the U.S. Back came back to Iran, and um, she actually taught me English. It was our my English tutor. Then the second contribution she made was gave us a ping pong table with me and my brother when we were practicing for ping pong tournaments. We were practicing on our dining table, which my mom was very happy when we got <laughs> the ping pong table. After the revolution, everything had become very expensive and ping pong table was not something that was imported back then and was not as affordable. So then me and my brother did very well in the ping pong tournaments. And uh, so that was second contribution. And she came, she returned back to U.S., and came back for a visit. At the time, she was working at Apple and at the Newton Group at Apple. And I was in college, you know, in love with computer science. I really liked it. And uh, here, Shifte come back and gave me this T-shirt, which was from the Newton Group at Apple. Um, you know, when I put it on, I had this special feeling. I don't know how to describe it, but... I had this special feeling that there's this connect, there's a connection to this T-shirt, and lo and behold, uh, two years later, I was working at the Newton Group at Apple. So it was that's the story. Yeah, it was, isn't, isn't it crazy? Like one T-shirt just completely changed. It's it's crazy, right? Completely changed your future. Yeah, I, I mean, it, the T-shirt didn't change my future, but the connection was weird for me because I felt special when I put that T-shirt on and. In my wildest dream, I would not have imagined in two years later to be in the U.S. to begin with, to be at Apple and, and then at the Newton group, group, right? Um, in Iran, as you know, you have to go to military service first before they give you a passport. But at least back then was the case. And I hadn't done my military service. I was just finishing up my bachelor's. And um, so that would have been two years after that to just finish the military. So it was just to have a passport. And then to be at the U.S. was out at another dimension of difficulty. So this, that, the fact that this happened is a miracle by itself. Yeah. But man, this is crazy. Some of, some of the stuff that you're saying, right? We used to do exact same thing with my brother and dining table, put these cassettes, right? As a, as a separator between Net. the two sides, right? <laughs> exactly. It's, Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, we have been through similar things. So, 
what was growing up like? I want you to jump in on this as well, Reza. Why don't you start with? Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it was, uh, so I born in 1983. It was during Iran-Iraq war. And uh, yeah, I think it was, so I grew up during the war. Um, the war ended when I was seven. And uh, yeah, the childhood, yeah, childhood was tough. Um, especially we were living in, in Tehran, close to a big power plant. They call it Bargalestum. Uh, and uh, they were trying to obviously um, bomb that uh, power plant. And the crazy things is that, I mean, it's not that long ago, but the technology apparently that they had was really bad, right? They start bombing all around, but not at the station, <laughs> which, I mean, it was really sad, right? So all these civilians get, get killed. But, um, but yeah, it, I mean, that was like my childhood. Um, we had like some, some tough days and, uh, uh, yeah. And, and, and then after, um, after I started going to a school, it still, it was like a, side effect after after war right there was like a uh, lack of oil we had to stay in the line to get oil uh, you i don't know if you remember yeah, or of course i remember <laughs> so it was yeah it was it was tough but we have been uh, through it and i think um you know being through those difficult situation um it it really waken up something in, into your DNA that that make you deal with anything else in your life, right? Any any difficult situation that comes your way, you're not afraid of it because you saw the worst, worst shit that can happen, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, this was uh, the summary of my, my childhood. But that's intense, though. And I feel like a lot of people, at least in Vancouver, in the Bay Area, they, they take things for granted that other people, it's it's very difficult to... Yeah, and, and I think the fascinating things is that when you are leaving it, you don't feel it. Like, you don't feel as bad, right? But mm-hmm. now when you look back, you're like, holy shit, how I was leaving this, right? right? right. I mean, right. it's, yeah, that's that's a crazy thing about life. I mean, in whatever, and, and I really believe that one of the features of human is that you get adopted to any kind of situation very fast. It's just like, you know, you give it a little bit of time and you would be adopted. Uh, and, and that's really fascinating about, the whole, you know, human being, because you get adopted. I mean, the first time I left the country, I was really depressed, right? I mean, and 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 it was Turkey, right? It was not <laughs> even that far, but uh, I was I was really, you know, close to my family, so it was it was really hard for me. But uh, but after a while, you know, you get used to it. It become normal, uh, and and that's to me is, uh, is 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 really fascinating. What about you? Uh, I'm a little bit older than Reza, it looks like it. And so I, I, I saw the before revolution and after revolution. So I would probably my life in Iran was had four sections before the revolution until I was 10, um, you know, middle-class life, good life. Um, you know, my parents were, uh, my mom was a school principal. My dad was a lawyer in the army, you know, good life. Nothing uh, special about it, but nothing crazy about it either. Then the revolution happened, and the year that that year and the year pre- uh, after that was uh, complete chaos in the country, but a lot of hopefulness as well. Uh, people thought that you know we are going to have a democracy. Various, you know, a lot of hopefulness, a lot of political uh, dynamism. You would see in, in my school bus. We had our school had from first grade to twelfth grade. You would see all this 
different factions of political debate within this, you know, this school bus between high schoolers, middle schoolers, which was crazy. And then the war happened a year after that, and everything changed. Um, when the war happens, you know, people now know that, you know, Saddam was probably not the best character, but back then Iran was attacked by Saddam and pretty much everybody in the world supported the other side. And, and um, so it changed our lives. And we were bombed, we were, um, you know, rationed, all those things that you, that, you know, people who are caught on both sides of the war, and I'm sure it was the same in Iraq and people had a lot of difficulties as well. So um, people pay, pay the price for these wars, obviously. So that was the eight years of war. It was surreal, as Reza was saying, you know, you look back, we adapted, but it was, you know, strange. I had two classmates who went and volunteered and died before high school ended. And another two classmates during college, the first year of college still was the war. And so, you know, we knew these people, they then then volunteered, all of them volunteered. And um, you think, you know, all this human life has been lost for what? But that was the life. a lot of political changes happened during that time as well, and Iran became a different country. Um, and then after the war, we still were dealing with that. That three years after that, I was at school, mostly studying, not not you know getting involved with anything else. And then through you know a serendipitous series of events, I ended up at my at you in the US. But that's a separate story. Well, talk to us about break dancing. You wanted to be a break dancer <laughs> when you were a kid. Because Reza was telling me it was a, I think it was a trend. Probably there was a there was a period in Iran that I mean I I didn't have interest, but but they, I had a couple of friends that they all wanted to be breakdancer. There was a period I think that. <laughs> well, this is the first time I'm publicly talking about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I we did breakdancing back then. It's it's very different view of it, but in back then that was uh, in Iran than it is in the US. Um, it was banned, obviously, and it was underground, and um, we felt that it is, you know, it felt, you know, your teenagers, and it felt that like a rebellious act against everything that's happening around you. There's a war going on. There's all those things, but you want to uh, hold on to this sliver of normal life, and that's what we were trying to do. It was underground, and we were doing it, and yeah. So you still remember some moves. <laughs> I do, actually. You do? <laughs> nice. You have to show us. <laughs> Offline. Offline. <laughs> Offline. So the revolution happens when you're 10. You leave at 23. You attend Sharif University. Before we jump to you moving to the U.S., Reza, I remember you telling me as well that there were a lot of like standardized tests in Iran. And the one that you did best on is what you studied. Didn't really matter what your passions were. So... Did that play into your transition from like electrical engineering to software? Was that something that you did on your own? Like, how did you get exposed to both sides? And then how did that take place? Uh, that's a good question. Actually, it did play into that, but in a different way than you would imagine. So we have this, at the end of high school, you have this entrance exam. About a million people attended, uh, attended and it's very simple. Um, One million people. 
Yeah, it, and at the time you had the war going on, so we had extra motivation because you would either go to school, which would exempt you from military school, right. military service, or you would go to war, basically. <laughs> the, the choices were like simple. Um, so you would study for this, there's one exam, they rank you from one to N. And uh, based on your ranking, you can choose, and the top schools, the top majors in top schools get filled up very quickly, right? Those are the, um, um, and there are different codas um, for, you know, and there's a lot of merit to that coda, but I, I was part of the coda that is for the people who have no coda. Basically, the big city people, uh, that was 25% of the coda that you get into the university. So basically, that's how they divided it. I had the ranking to go to pretty much any major that I wanted to, but I liked computer science. Back then, um, electrical engineering was ranked higher than computer science. Uh, computer science, as you know, strange as it may sound, was not as high, highly ranked. So when I wanted to, when I told my teachers and my parents that I wanted to go to computer science, everybody revolted against me. So <laughs> <laughs> you have the ranking to go to best school to electrical engineering. Why are you going to? Um, uh, why are you going to computer science? And the compromise became I would do computer engineering and hardware, which was still associated with the electrical engineering department, but I would do some computer science. My intention was to do computer science. So that was a compromise, and that's how I ended up studying hardware as well as software. So September 24th, 1993 rolls around. Talk about that. When I arrived in the U.S., you mean? Exactly. You, you arrived at 1 p.m. and you went to work at 3 p.m. Well, I, I arrived at 1 p.m. and there was a funny story on the immigration side of it because somebody from Microsoft was supposed to pick me up. And uh, they did for, you know, it never happens with the airlines, but this plane arrived early. So at the immigration, I said, you know, where are you going to go? And I said, you know, somebody from Microsoft is supposed to pick me up. And this is 1993. There were a lot of layoffs in Seattle. Boeing was laying off a lot of people. So Microsoft was like the employer that was hiring still and growing the city. So saying somebody from Microsoft picks me up, and I was so naive because I didn't know where I'm going to stay. So I had put my address of stay. It was one Microsoft way, Microsoft. <laughs> That didn't go with the immigration officer there either. And so and the third thing that happened is that my luggage were lost and my documents were in my luggage. And so all these three things caused a little bit of delay there. But when I arrived, I, was, I remember crossing this bridge over Lake Washington. It was such a beautiful day. And uh, basically, I went with my uh, K1 who came to pick me up from Microsoft to go see my would-be manager. And he said, well, you're too tired today. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> so between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., I went and rented an apartment, bought some clothes because my luggage was lost, as I mentioned, and got, enough, uh, you know, got ready to go to work. And the next day I showed up at work for the next year. I was working 16 hours a day seven days a week, not feeling tired at all. It was in, in you know, in so, candy land. So, so you got your bachelor and then you got the job offer from Microsoft and that's how you directly come to Seattle? It's a longer story. I was in the middle of my master's actually. I got into a master's program, which is a completely different story. Uh, thank you, mom, because uh, I was not going to go <laughs> to that uh, master's program. Um, yeah, I, 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 because I mentioned you have to do your military service before you can get your passport. 
I really wanted to get my passport and uh, I was not intending to go, uh, I was not planning to go to master's program, so I wasn't going to take the exam for it either. And my mom insisted and that I should just take the exam and uh, I took the exam without really much studying for it. And then I got in and um, my mom basically said, are you crazy? Everybody wants to go to this. Are you not going to go to a master's program? And that allowed me to get an exemption while I was in the middle of it. And, and the, the way that I ended up working uh, with Microsoft was this gentleman, Bahram Mazabi, who had come back to Iran, had connections there and decided to do Windows, Farsi, Arabic and Hebrew and had to get a contract for that in Iran. And I started working on that and people at Microsoft said, we want them to come over here to work. So that's how I ended up there and God bless his soul, he passed away. Um, but... Um, it was, I had no, no plans. It was all accidentally happened. But being in the middle of the master's through a lot of paperwork allowed me to get that one exit permit, which my mom contributed to that. So, um. Well, I remember in my research that you stayed up till like 4 a.m. in the Microsoft library because you were just so excited to be in the U.S. What was the biggest shock for you when you first came? Um, the biggest shock for me, to be honest, had nothing to do with the tech. It was the fact that neighbors didn't know each other in my apartment complex. It is such a strange thing coming from Iran. Everybody knows their neighbors. They go introduce themselves. They, the first thing they want to know is who's the neighbor, who's moved in. And uh, for me, the six months after that I was no there, I had not met any <laughs> of my neighbors. <laughs> and I mean, my work style contributed to that. I would leave early, came back um, basically every day. My Plan my, I would get up early in the morning, go to work, um, and Microsoft had lunch, dinner, everything, breakfast. <laughs> you didn't never had to leave the campus, and I was in heaven. I really enjoyed uh, working with the people I was working, working, seeing all these technologies that far from far away I was always dreamed of being involved with. And then I would after dinner I would take a short break. And there was this library at Microsoft that was amazing and had all the things that you want to learn. And I would go there and would not want to leave until I would fall asleep and then get off again from my chair, go home. Yeah, so that was my life. Didn't have much life other than work, basically. Reza talked about that as well, actually. Just knowing your neighbors in the complex, you know, if you need a stick of butter, you just knock on the door, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, it was, I mean, completely different atmosphere, right? It's a it's completely different culture. Although, unfortunately, now, from what I hear is that it's completely different now, even in Iran. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was very different. We used to, you know, whenever my mom was cooking and she was missing onion, I, I had to go to the neighbor and get it from them. So... Yeah, but that's not going to happen here. It's uh, it's it's a different lifestyle. So, yeah, there there are some neighborhoods that are like that, but for me in apartment complex, that was a surprise for me. There are neighborhoods obviously here that they, everybody knows each other, the neighbors and all that. But for me, that was a shock back then, given where I was. Well, two thousand one rolls around, and you start your own company. And not only do you start your own company, you don't raise any venture money. You bootstrapped it which is a bit of an anomaly down here. And I would love for you to talk about that. And looking back, do you think some of these things that you did are sort of underrated or undervalued? Um, I do have a different view of it now after being three years in the VC than I had back then, but I can share both views. Uh, 2001, 
this was the third startup for me. I, I joined another startup in 97, another one in 2000 with Armand and Alan, which uh, were my co-founders that we ended up starting a third company with each other. We were roommates as well. They were finishing up their PhDs at Stanford. Um, so we worked at a startup before that for one year, and that was acquired. And then we decided as crazy as it may sound, in 2001, everybody was getting laid off. You know, the whole thing was crashing. And uh, we had disemployment agreements because of the previous acquisition that we could stay at our job for another two years, pretty much guaranteed salary and, you know, a whole lot of other financial incentives. But we thought we just want to do something new again. And um, we quit our jobs. I don't remember. I, I never forget the f- look on the face of one of my friends when he heard, she heard that I'm quitting. She look, it just looked was that you're the craziest person I know <laughs> who would quit their job at this uh, economy. But we really believed in working with each other. We wanted to uh, do it again. And um, so the question of bootstrapping is really... Everybody's bootstrapping in any startup. The question is up up until when and what is happening before that. So if you're an experienced founder, your bootstrapping has happened, you know, second time founder, your bootstrapping has happened already. You know, you have been doing this for a while. And, um, you you know, when you go, uh, let me start with something else, actually. There are many ways to build good companies. And there are many ways to build very profitable companies. There, there are a portion of these good companies that are venture backable. So not every good company is venture backable, and I can go into that. And these were my learnings after become a VC, obviously. And by venture backable, maybe I'm talking about the tier one VCs as well. I mean, there are a lot of amazing institutions that fund smaller companies in various, you know, market sizes and things like that. So if you talk about tier one VCs, there are just a portion of these companies that are venture backable, the main thing being is that this comp- what's the potential for this company? Is this a multi-billion dollar company or mo- is the market, you know, if you look at the tier one VCs, they say, is it a hundred billion dollar opportunity? It may not turn out to be, but at least it, at the beginning, it should, it should have the potential to become that. So when you, if you want to build one of these kind of companies, having bootstrapping it all the way to the end is a very, very, very difficult <laughs> proposition. Um, the Having partners like VCs who have been there and, you know, have seen this money, many cycles of it, and I can, they can really provide a partnership for you that you would not get otherwise um, is very important. Now, you can decide to go bootstrap that. <laughs> it's just a lot more difficult um, when you have you know, hiring in talent, um, getting various help at various stages of the startup, and every stage is different and every stage is, it so has its own difficulties. So if you want to bootstrap a company, the question is, up, up, first of all, up until when? Is it a venture-backable company? And if it's a venture-backable company, do you not prefer to have these partners with you? It comes at a cost, obviously, to have partner with VCs. You have to give up parts of your company. Um, but that doesn't matter at the end of the day. If you're one of those categories, in, I mean, it matters, but it, it basically, if you're successful, it wouldn't matter. And if you're not successful, you're not successful anyway. For some companies, this kind of growth and this kind of problem solving may not be actually realistic. So um, 
there are companies that, you know, the market size for them is the potential is not as great as a VC-backed company. It can be a great company to bootstrap, to have very good outcome for the founders, but doesn't mean that you need, you, you, need, you can get investment for it. So still, those are good companies with good outcomes for everybody involved. Again, if you want to bootstrap, you have to really consider which one of these areas are you playing at. I, one thing I would say, if you ever decide to bootstrap, you have to be very aligned with your co-founders. If you have co-founders, or what uh, that this is what you're doing. The reason we bootstrapped is that it was 2001. We went to three VC meetings. Um, and now looking back as a VC at what we were talking about back then, our, the market we were promising was not as big. Back then, you had a vision, but it wasn't as big. Everything was crashing. Not much, not, not many companies were being, uh, I think at, at, in that year, if I'm not mistaken, there were like 40 companies who were got funding in Bay, you know, in Bay Area. So it was very hard, uh, difficult uh, scenario to raise money. And we decided, okay, we see a clear path to a customer right now. Why don't we build and see what happens after? And um, so, but we were aligned. The three of us had made a commitment to each other for five years uh, that we're going to work, we committed to this for five years. And um, then we, because we were doing this, we built a very intentional culture and that became a light, um, that saved our company, to be honest. If you're bootstrapping, did, we were very, um, deliberate about our, our people who were joining us and to match that culture and understand what we're doing. And we ended up with amazing people joining us. And um, in the first eight years, we had only one person leaving, which was, this is these are the people that had lots of options everywhere else. Um, these are PhDs from Stanford and all that. All they take, all it takes for them to go put their resume out and Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these companies who were growing at the time that we were uh, working on this uh, could have hired them. But creating that culture of, you know, it, it, and I can go into a lot more detail about the culture, but creating that culture is essential if you want to boot, uh, do bootstrapping because your team has to be in sync with you. And uh, another aspect of it is that you really have to do get your product management and engineering com product management right and the tension between the two rights. And, and that I can go into a lot more detail. I would love for you to, because I remember you had a board member named Steve. Like just to your point about selecting the right people, being there very thorough, the fact that you don't have investors maybe pushing you as much, you can take your time in making those decisions. And it took us a long time, to be honest. The market, again, as a VC looking at it, the market we were going after was a very difficult market. It was just starting to happen. Uh, the problem was a lot more difficult than we anticipated. And um, frankly, VC money would probably not help as much with it because the problem was such a difficult iterations with the customers that having to grow as fast as a VC expectation, which a few of the people who tried, uh, who actually did the same, uh, were in the same problem area, uh, raised and didn't work out as well for them because the market didn't materialize as fast as we expected it to. And the problem would, uh, would take a lot of iterations with the customer. And uh, so 
some of the things, so Steve, um, as, as because we were bootstrapped the three board members with the three founders, and we felt that we needed an outside voice. And because we were getting close, finally the market had developed for what we were working. We were growing fast at that time and faster than before. And um, we felt that there is a shift happening in the industry. And we thought we need somebody who can help us navigate um, this this aspect. We asked Steve Nye um, and that uh, he was an, um, a general manager at Cisco before that and was very involved in our industry. Could, we were getting, uh, we were approached by, you know, various uh, would-be acquirer as well. I mean, we were starting to see that happening. And then by the time, by that time, they had put a name on what we were working on. They called software-defined networking. We just for, have working, we had this vision and worked towards it, but we didn't know we did. We didn't. They, they, the industry didn't have a name for it, and so suddenly we applied to a portion of this industry that was developing very fast, and we needed outside guidance to help us navigate that. So Steve came on board in 2011, and uh, stayed with us until after the acquisition, and was a key, a key contributor to our thought process doing that. I know, I know, I know. Casper probably has done a, a research on, on on your background and the companies, but maybe tell tell us what was the company because I, I have no idea. Is was the hardware company, software company? All right, sorry, sorry. Maybe I should explain it. Uh, Caridan was, uh, in one sentence, a company for traffic management for backbone networks. These are backbone networks of the internet. Imagine a Google map, uh, but instead of the streets, you have anywhere from fiber optics that connects these international networks all the way to the logical layers of this network. And then you would want to predict where would I, my, if given the growth that I have, for example, we have use cases for three categories of users, network architects, network engineers, and network operators. Network architects want to know six months in the future, where do I need to add capacity? So they have to predict, simulate this network. So in one Geeky sentence, our solution was a near real-time predictive model for these networks and a whole lot of GUIs and more scale, uh, other, other uh, tooling that goes around it. So that's what architects would look into the future, say six months in the future, where do I need to have capacity or what, what do I have to do to make my network more resilient? So they could do that in our tool. Network engineers would say, I need to bring down this part of the network for maintenance and I'm upgrading here. What do I need to do to be resilient or uh, safe? Network operators would say, oh my God, the cross-Atlantic fiber optic was cut by a ship. What do I have to do now to be able to um, have, you know, have not disruption in my services? What, what are the effects of it? These are the use cases we were building for. Was that the second question, or was it the? No, no. Uh, I was just, I was just wondering what right. was the company, so, was so the that, hardware that, or so software. So when, when we started, it was we thought that the networks basically, and going back to the net, uh, market developing later as well, the networks we thought that they are, they were these distributed systems that are designed for the past 20, 30 years, uh, you know, called internet. Um, it was designed and maintained as a distributed system. We, we believe that you, can, you should have a single place that you can manage, leave the distributed system ca uh, capabilities and attributes that is very desirable. You know, it can go down and it can re you, your traffic reroutes automatically, nothing happens. It was designed to withstand nuclear attacks, right? Um, 
but how, but you have a more business-like approach to managing this and having a single pane of, you know, and that's why it's called software-defined networking, part of it. The other part of it of uh, software-defined networking is separating the, you know, the control from the uh, forwarding in the network. We can talk about that later. But anyways, that was, our vision was that you need to run these networks differently. Can we provide the tool for that? Uh, the problem was that the 2001 crash happened and everybody would say, well, my network is empty. What do you want to manage? <laughs> And it <laughs> took a while for the traffic to come up, and it's hard to believe that those networks actually had to shut down parts of themselves because everything crashed and nobody was using. The, the internet traffic that was supposed to materialize took a few year, more years to materialize. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think one thing I can think Reza and I were both interested in was what sparked the interest in VC? Um, I, I'm afraid I don't have an exciting answer for you. <laughs> uh, the um, I actually, I'm an accidental VC, if I the best term I can put on it. Um, I was going to start looking to starting another company. After Cisco, I stayed at Cisco acquired a company, I stayed a few years, uh, led the wide area network of the SDN effort um, over there on the technical side. Then, then uh, took a learning sabbatical, basically. I, I, Stop! I was always interested in artificial intelligence. I had started my master's was in that. I had used a lot of components of it in the in our application. Uh, wanted to learn that more deeply. So for two years, I was on my skateboard going to various classes. And within that, I helped a few companies get started. You know, as an advisory role, did a couple of environmental projects. But um, after that, I thought, okay, I'm going to start looking to entrepreneur path again. I was talking to Pejman, the founder of Pear, and we had talked a few years before, and I was not ready to consider a VC path back then. He basically mentioned, I was talking to him and said, you know, what are the trends you see in the market? What are the areas? Just as part of my research. And then he said, we have a, a, a you know, visiting partner role here. Why don't you come and see for yourself? And we just started this role. This is the first time we're doing it. And I joined as a visiting partner, started working with founders. We have a PairX program, which is an accelerator similar to an accelerator. It's a boot camp for startups. Uh, it's uh, small batches, uh, not the YC is like a different model, ours is a small batch, and with a lot of hands-on attention to the companies, uh, about 10, 15 people, and I started working with founders. I really enjoyed that work. Uh, the founders happened to uh, see my involvement as valuable and like to work with me as well. I think going through all this bootstrap, uh, being on the operator side of these things uh, allowed me to have, um, you know, to be able to both go deep technically on the product side and but also on, on the, all the other aspects that the founders deal with, which they deal with a lot. Uh, so I started enjoying that work and uh, decided I couldn't help them part-time. I started showing up at work every day because there was a lot of work to be done. And uh, after a while, Fejman and Mar basically told, um, offered um, leave offered me to stay as a partner and they always supported me um, in various if, if I wanted to do something else as well. But that's how I became a VC base. And just being, uh, I felt that I can um, use the experience and uh, use, use my passion and um, the, the fact that I like to work with entrepreneurs and affect more than one company in that. As, a, as an entrepreneur, you have one journey, one team, which is extremely important. 
and extremely valuable, but I felt that at this point, maybe I can do this. And um, it's three years later, I'm still doing it. So which side do you like more? <laughs> to be on the other side or to be on the side of the VCs? To be honest, Pair has operated like a startup itself. Uh, we constantly iterate and uh, we have grown. I, when I joined, was we were five and now more than 24 people. And uh, we iterate like a startup. So Pair itself is like a startup. And I really go deep uh, because of both the PairX program that we have with our founders. I feel like a part-time co-founder with a lot of the founders that I've worked with. So I, I get to, obviously it's not the same of being responsible for it as a founder. And I, I give all the credit to the founders, but at least from on my side, I get to experience various companies in various stages, uh, all in parallel. And, you know, get more conviction on some of the things I believe that are necessary and work. And, modify my beliefs in areas that I think I can improve it. And it's been an amazing growth experience for me. So um, yeah, that's the answer. But uh, being a founder is a very special position. I think uh, founders are probably the only positions in any, any job that you look at that everything is aligned in terms of incentives for them. Because of that, they have a very powerful impacts beyond in their own company as well and uh, also a lot of responsibility and i think experiencing that as a leader becoming growing to be a leader for some some of us uh, was the case for me uh, is an important experience to have in life that's, that's pretty cool so you have experience with, with different companies right different startups that you started and now you are experienced getting experience in this vc role right working with different startups you are now you are seeing trends right you were asking pejman what are the what are the trends but now you are seeing all those trends what do you think gonna be next for you like where you see yourself in like next 10 years um Right now, we see uh, that that is the place I am at right now. And um, my first and foremost is to um, goal is to serve the founders that I work with, and also um, they're the group group of founders that have been very uh, deliberately and intentionally they were growing, and also I work very deeply with them. Obviously, our goal at the VC is uh, the power law. Basically, we need to find the next big company, the, um, the next DoorDash of the world, the next Databricks of the world. And so that is, um, for me, that I'm, I'm uh, on the enterprise side, within that on the AI and ML, uh, modern data stacks, cloud tooling, cloud infrastructure, developer tooling and developer infrastructure and security, these are the areas I cover. The companies tend to be a lot more technical in these fields and uh, there are there are, we have a platform for understanding, uh, finding and working with these companies. And also there's additional uh, attributes that companies that are have a deeply technical component to them that we have to look out for. So my goal has been to build a platform, help uh, be part of pair team as in building a platform that uh, me as a founder wanted to have and I wanted to be a platform for experienced founders to find value in it as well and so that's what we're building uh, right and and the plan is to grow with these companies and keep providing guidance and suggestion to the right. founders right at, at pair our goal is very simple um, we are pre-seed and seed and we want to be the best in that stage so early stage and uh 
the goal is to provide the best platform for getting, taking people at, uh, from pre-seed all the way to series A and be best at that. So that's what we're trying to build. We only have 10 more minutes left. This is awesome. Um, actually, one thing I was curious about is when it comes to like evaluating the people themselves, I've found that a lot of engineers like don't have the business background. So they're like the pitch itself might, they might not puff their chest out as much, but in some ways, does that make it easier? Because you can kind of see through the BS, you can see through all the bravado and what they might exude. And it's just the tech. What are your thoughts on that? Um, obviously I love technical founders that, uh, you know, uh, but I have to say at the same time, being a founder means that being having strength in multiple dimensions. Right. Uh, technical obviously is one of, if you're building a technical company, you need to have the right founder market fit there. Um, there's no way around it. Um, most I know almost 99.9% of the time uh, you can have bring in help if you have, if you have uh, enough of a vision for the market and all that, but um, that's doable. I think the technical found we, because we have a very technical team. We have a core technical team at Pair as well. We can go deep with them and we can understand their, uh, their pitch and deck and, uh, if it's lacking some of the components that it can, we think it can be added um, relatively easily, we can we, we ignore those parts. Uh, there are portions of, you know, for us as early stage investors, one of, we don't have as many signals as a late, later stage investor has. So a later stage investor has a lot more signals, traction, customer love, all those things that you will look for. Um, for us, the founders are the most important at the beginning. If it's a very early stage startup, then the market and the tech. Um, if a founder is the transparency in a founder, we know that when we start with working with these founders, there's a high likelihood that they will pivot in the middle, right? And we see it all the time with our prayer at bootcamp that we have, and we see it also with our early stage investment on the seed side as well. So the important portion is that, is this a founder that we can work with over the next 10 years? And is it, so if a founder transparency and self-awareness is important for them. Uh, understanding what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, why they're starting a company is important to us. And also obviously all the other traditional metrics. So is, is there a good founder market fit? Why is this founder starting this company? What, what was the reasoning for that? So if in the technical founders, when they come and they pitch, like, uh, they pitch that technical vision, we still need to understand if this has the possibility of a large market, right? And, or if it doesn't, as it's current in incarnation, is there a way that it can be a adjacent market, some other market that they could look for? So we can help, we work with those founders as long as the other components are there. And we have many metrics that how we evaluate founders as well, but a good portion of it is pattern matching that we've seen how good founders work. But a good component of it is that can I, when we work with it in the, during the pitch session or the due diligence phase, can we work together to create something bigger, something better? And that's a very important component. All right. Well, I have to ask green flags and red flags in pitches for you. What are they? Um, the green is relatively easy. <laughs> you know, a founder that has the rights, if the founders that have, you know, a combination of 
the right background and understanding of the market and the good reason for why they're studying that. They have found a problem that is big enough for people to want to pay for it. And a solution can be imagined or in the works that they're working on and why why this founder and why now doing this company. So these, these components have to come together. Since we see very early people, we sometimes see two people with an idea and the traction metrics and things like that, we have to look for, um, you know, stand-in metrics, right? Have you talked, how many customers have you talked to that, you know, have had this problem? What, what the feedback is there? Sometimes the wait list, sometimes various uh, components of that. But if a founder... Uh, or founders can talk, walk us through this and it help us see their vision, see the world through their eyes. And it makes sense to us that that's the green one. Well, the red are few. If any of these components are missing, it's sometimes orange, sometimes red, depending on which how critical is that component. Um, obviously, we like to have, you know, transparency with the founder, you know, if uh, it helps a lot. And we understand that we can work with that founder better. You know, it, if we can find out if the founder uh, transparency is important, honesty and transparency, obviously, uh, both of them are very important. But also how founder we look if successful company by definition requires other people joining you. We will, I, I personally look at, you know, can this founder hire a very good team? Would I be? Would I be wanting? Would I want to work for him or with him? And so that's a component that you know comes with a, a little bit of seeing the patterns and seeing being through it. You know, in our own startups, we hired. Every, I would do thirty-five interviews on average before hiring one person. So um, it it that that component of being at being able to attract the best team. And also doing the product that people want are very important in these components. And since AI and, you know, I can go into more details, but these are the, the flags that we look for. This is a personal question, but I always like saving something for the end like this. But in your life so far, you've lived all over the world. You've done incredible things. What has been your fondest memory? Wow. <laughs> um, birth of my son. It just... Um, that is a very special experience, I and mean, you, you cannot replace that with anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about you, Reza? So I I always <clears throat> dream of like like you that you had that Newton lab that you wanted to go to. I always wanted to go to MIT, even from the time that I started my undergrad, and it was yeah, it was. It's interesting because even when I went to Turkey, right, in Iran, obviously, everyone was laughing at me, especially because I was at Azad University. I uh, unfortunately got sick for the concours and I couldn't get to the uh, Sarasai. And then I went to the Azad University. So over there, everyone was laughing at me. They're like, are you crazy? <clears throat> and then I get the chance to go to Turkey for my master. Even there, I remember I was uh, an office mate with, uh, with another Iranian guy. And then uh, there was this specific professor that I wanted to work with him uh, because he was young. And, uh, you know, my dream was always to become uh, a young professor, right? I mean, especially my family is similar to yours. My dad was a principal in the school. My mom was teacher. My aunts, my uncle, everyone was teacher, right? So it had like that teaching DNA in our, in our genes. And uh, 
yeah and then and then i saw this guy and i'm like i'm gonna go and work with this guy one day and um i exactly remember that guy was telling me like are you crazy you're gonna email this guy he's never gonna reply to you but you see i mean again that was one of the things that some people put limitation on them on themselves in their brain right so that guy would never even try to email someone from mit but i emailed that guy right and that kind of was this sort of some sort of friendship and then i end up being at mit right i made it happen and that was probably one of the most important moments of my life because i felt so powerful it took a long time but i made it happen right so and that's basically a lesson that i always have and uh, if i want to achieve something i would make it happen it's just it might take long time but i mean, i will make it happen I think for me, that was like one of the very profound moments of my life that I felt so powerful that uh, uh, I think if anyone feel uh, that that sense of uh, power, then you would feel that you can do anything in your life. No, it's an amazing story. I mean, I mean, birth of a child changes your life in so many ways. So this is maybe a retrospective that that's the most special time. But at the time of feeling it, obviously, it's a very special moment along those lines. Um, I remember being on that uh, bridge over Lake Washington when I was when I arrived in the US. It was such a surreal moment for me as well. And um, obviously, the next one would be when our company got acquired, their reaction um, from our employees or our colleagues that we've been working so hard and you have this responsibility on your shoulder that people stuck with you for 11 years and, you know, and being able to deliver. And also it became a strange, it was special in two different ways. One was, it was, we felt the relief that we actually could deliver something. And also it was strange because people were actually not as happy as we thought they would be because they they liked the work environment and they felt that it's going to change. And that was a complete surprise to me. I thought everywhere is going to be happy, but some people actually were not happy, which is a, a bittersweet for me, right? It's bitter because I felt that I'm delivering something, we're delivering something that makes them happy. It's sweet because they liked working there. <laughs> Right, and and I can the, the, being uh, this. I want to say, you know, uh, I don't. I feel that the accomplishments that somebody has is a function of many things. Um, a lot of it depends on the, the what the factors out of your control, and and I. It makes me very humble to think that I could be in a different scenario and I would end up in a very different, you know, outcome also makes me hopeful at the same time that um, there are aspects of our surrounding that if is in our control and we can change to the outcome uh, to change the outcome but i just wanted to mention that you know i i, I always feel that um this if you have any accomplishments this is a factor of a whole lot of people helping you and being in the right places and the right conditions that a lot of us could be in the same places so it's uh, good to be conscious of that when we're dealing with entrepreneurs and all these uh, all, all the people who work with us i think i, I think my, my dad always keep telling me he's like doesn't matter how successful you are remember you are also lucky because there are so many people that might have you know a lot more skill than you have and you know a lot more a lot 
being a lot more intelligent, but because of so many other situations that happened to them, they couldn't make it, right? Like like you did. So that's I think I think that's super important to be aware of it for sure. And uh, we are lucky to be here. We are lucky to be here today. And uh, yeah, and I think it was an honor for us to talk to you. Right. No, the honor was all mine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so this concludes our conversation with Arash Afrate and our guest, Dr. Reza Azizian. If you like this episode, be sure to give it a download as well as a rating and review wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Cassius Velagilla. Thanks for listening.